the dust my shoulders all day. I've been waiting, been patient, been anxious. Now I here for bring back your greatness. Yes, the rap I leave, jab I weave, then come back with the same jab times three. I blow smoke to the heaven. I'm so dope, it's a weapon. Rats one big casino. I'm plotting Ocean Eleven. I, I might have sold the least, but I still managed to be most feared by most MCs. Good. Who dope is me? Who close to me? For sure, Bobby, nobody. Yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. Now listen, you can either comprehend it or compliment it. It's all authentic. Yeah. But you better believe whatever I say. Ladies and gentlemen, this is another edition of Never Out of Bounds. This is the place where you can say what you want as long as you got them facts. This is your host, L. Jamal, coming through with an, a Black History Month edition. Um, well, disclaimer, of course, everybody, yes, Black is not a race. We we know this. Um, I already know this, but I think Black has just been always the term to, um, you know, for the collective of people of the African diaspora. It's just a collective term. It's a colloquialism. Um, get over it. It shouldn't be a hang-up. We, we, we were in the 60s and 70s and even up until some part of the 80s. Black is beautiful. Now, Black History Month. Black is in the race. Black is supposed, we're looking at disdain about the word. It's not about that. There's no, there shouldn't be any negative connotation to what we once thought was beautiful anyways. Isn't it? Aren't we beautiful for being black? Remember black is beautiful? Come on now. Get over it. Okay, let's talk about some history today. That we're going to talk about multiple sources. We're going to, we're going to uh, debate a little bit. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about the differences between oral history and written history. And why one might be perceived to be more authentic than the other. We're going to talk about three kingdoms today of Western Africa, Ghana, Mali, and Songhai. Three of these, the three empires that I'm going to talk about today uh, were, dom well, they all dominated the transatlantic, well, not the transatlantic, the trans-Saharan routes, trade routes in Western and Northern Africa. That is how they acquired their wealth. We're going to talk a little bit more about how they did that, and to some extent, <clears throat> a little bit more detail as we go along. But that's what they did. They traded the biggest commodities in that area, in that region at the time, which would be considered the Sahel, which is right at, right between, uh, well, chalk between the Sahara to the north, and to the south, we have the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, they traded mostly, well, they traded all types of goods because, again, these were farmers and herders as well, many of these groups. So we're going to talk about some history today, some facts that you can also, like I said, found, be found in multiple sources. I have some literary sources here. Of course, I have my other book sources as well. Uh, I have online information as well. Again, all verified, all things that you can find. So again, when you say black history, it's, again, it's all for the, it's all collective. Because again, more than likely, you might be related to some of these people. Again, the, the slaves that live in this country came particularly from certain areas of Africa. Areas that, um, well, for one, they encompass the people of the Mandingo, the Malinke, the Hausa, the Fulani, the Iwe, people more than likely, uh, one of the, you know, some of the original people taken into bondage. If we're looking at everything geographically and where everything lies today with these countries today, uh, the countries of Mali, uh, we have the country of Mauritania, uh, eventually the descendants of the the Ghana the well you would well the Ghana Empire uh, who were at the time uh, would be referred to as the Sankara and Soninke would eventually uh, be the 
be the well, be the original inhabitants of what will be now. What will be now Ghana, the country, their their you know parent uh, group. So again, another and another again area near the coast area where they imported a lot of slaves. So it all comes full circle. And I best I think it's best that we all know about it and we have some clarification and that we know that it's not just slave history. When we say black history, we're not just talking about when we were victimized and we were put down. We're going to be talking about our armies. And we're going to be talking about uh, our 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 trade. Uh, basically, we they had trade, almost trade unions that worked uh, within the community for the betterment of the community as well. Not just for their just group. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And uh, let's get straight into it um, without no more introduction. I think we can go straight into this. And let's just start off with the first of these empires. Again, we're talking about Ghana. And these were founded. This this empire was founded by the Soninke. Who, who, who will become the Soninke and also the Wankawa? There's also another name for it as well, uh, an, an older name for it. I I can't remember that off the top of my head right now. But the language is spoken in this in this empire would also be the the basis of a lot of the other uh, the empires as well. Uh, they all. The thing about it is, these tribes and these groups live so close to each other. That's why, when the Europeans came and decided to take over, and decided to put borders and create what they would call countries, what they were doing was that they were cutting off and splice, basically splicing up uh, the African communities that were already in place for at least thousands of years because uh, people have been living in the in this area of Africa, uh, and this is most notably around two rivers, uh, the Senegal River, and most notably uh, will be the Niger River as well. The Niger River Delta was inhabited, I believe, around, uh, I want to say, 1000 BCE, officially. Um, and again, these groups came in here, and they, they uh, would eventually first settle around the south where there was green farms, and uh, they were able to, and that's again when some of the big empires first started up they started as farming communities first and we'll get to that in just a second and then you also had other tribes from the north where it was a little bit drier because of course we're in the sahel uh right in between the sahara and again the lush forests of the interior and of course uh to the coast more toward the coast as well so we're in that in between so up north you would have again where you have the herders uh they all again were along the trade routes going through the sahara again all the way up to the uh islamic islamic influenced countries are already islamic conquered countries the arabic conquered countries at this point and then you also got again uh these routes connect everything again to sub to sub parts of sub-saharan africa as well where we're getting more spices and uh, we're getting other we're getting the crops and actually the farm goods going to towards the north and again you have a trade going between uh the sahel and two uh in between everybody of you know slaves even at the time, salt, which was a major uh, commodity, as well as the gold. So, and again, a lot of these places, the big major hubs that you see today, one of the things that they did get into was taxing all the goods that came through their, their spots, their at least their capital as well. So that led to a lot of their wealth on top of that. Uh, but for the uh, the Empire of Ghana, it existed between 300 CE and 11,000 CE, of course, in what will be the areas of uh, southern uh, southern Mali and also what will be now Mauritania. Uh, now, again, some of the languages spoken, like I said, uh, Mali, um, I'm sorry, Malinke and Mende, uh, that's, these languages would also be spoken in Mali as well. And also, I believe, in some parts, Songhai as well, because, again, a lot of these people moved around. Or the the languages were just uh, vast. The, the areas in which they spoke them were vast, although the, the cultures uh, might be different. Sort of like, you know, you see with, you know, English, as, as opposed to how they speak in maybe uh, the Caribbean and in the States. They speak completely different in um 
you know, England. So based on the culture, uh, the vernacular is quite different as well. So the capital of Ghana, uh, oh, sorry, of Ghana would be Wagadu, and that would be the ancient uh, name. Actually it, wasn't, actually, it wasn't Wagadu, but that is the ancient name here for Ghana. Uh, and the capital for them would be Kum, uh, Kumbi Saleh. Now, this was a city, uh, again, one of the biggest trade hubs in the area at the time. So, again, they acquired massive wealth. And this um, in this empire here was also able to have one of the first large first of the large armies uh in western africa uh they were able to uh, well basically pay uh, pay merchants and traders throughout the area to pretty much protect them along uh the, the routes uh, so they were able to make really good money from that as well because pretty much that's all you had going on there in that area was trade uh, by camel. And oh, oh, and the addition of the camel in about the seventh century uh, definitely boosted the economies of, uh, of Ghana as well because it made trade more easier. Uh, things were mobile and they were able to go, you know, from place to place faster and they wouldn't need to be, you know, stuck in, you know, where, you know, they can move a lot, a lot quicker. So that made trade a lot more efficient. And also uh, another thing about these three kingdoms, uh, this is when you see a, well, a, a real trend of Islamic conversion. So again, it kind of tells you, you know, it kind of shows you, okay. And it, in, um, in the story of, you know, Sanjata, which I'll talk about, uh, in just a little bit, uh, the, the founder of the Mali Empire, um, his, well, one of the first, well, Ghana, for one, was the first African kingdom to kind of start embracing Islam. Uh, they started to, well, a lot of their kings, you know, sort of blended it into what they were already doing. Uh, the uh, the Mali Empire did the same thing, but then you start to see a gradual, uh, gradual, gradual, sorry, gradual change because a Songhai would completely convert. Uh, they would actually uh, elect officials within their own government, and then also um, that were Muslim. So again, you had Muslim administration, a Muslim pretty much uh, or Islamic constitution there uh, in the Songhai Empire. So again. We're starting off from kings all the way in the Ghana Empire, you know, again, becoming familiar with it. But because also you have a traditional African, you have traditional African belief systems based on each, you know, group of people uh, that uh, would pretty much undermine his position within their society. Uh, because the, it, well, of course, Islam and, you know, of course, these African traditions would not be the same. So it would put the king in a very peculiar place. So he couldn't fully uh, convert himself to Islam or Christianity or any of those other religions. Well, you know, of course, it would be Catholicism as well uh, because of the Portuguese and, you know, at times, yeah, the Portuguese and the, and the Spanish. So again, um, it was a, it was a weird kind of situation where they would uh, basically blend uh, both, um, both of those together, their traditional beliefs and the religion together. And you can also tell by, because again, another, another source of these um, empires at the time, especially because there was so much racism, there was so much, you know, disbelief, well, not necessarily racism in terms of that, because that's not, that wouldn't be racist, so much prejudice uh, at the time uh, about the situation. Uh, it would be hard to for a, a lot of white scholars to sit there, sit back, especially we go back in the day to say, mm, you know, melanated people, especially dark, you know, you know, darker skinned people were able to do this. Uh, of course, at the time, you know, if we go back earlier in society, there was a time when we were considered to be inferior in so many different ways. And again, it kind of reflects itself in some of the uh, historical references, because again, uh, again, it was like a double edged sword, because again, you have, you know, accounts from Arabic scholars, Arabic traders about the existence of these places. They will go in depth 
on some, you know, on the palaces of gold, all the all the wealth and riches. And they got I got into contact with the the you know groups early, these empires early, uh, dating even back to Ghana. Uh, you had Al Bakri. Uh, he will go on to talk about them as well. And uh, he would describe, uh, you know, palaces laden with gold um, and, you know, and he would describe armies. He would describe, um, you know, groups with large spear or long spears, swords, they're decked out. So he would describe all those things. Uh, however, it's really interesting to take, well, like I said, it is a double edged sword because you have to take into account there is some uh, racism behind some of the things they said as well, or pre I'm sorry, prejudice uh, and a lot of that a lot of what well let's just be honest, let's just say it like it is a lot of the arabic perspective uh, at the time of these african uh, empires and nations were pretty much based off of uh, a were they adherents to islam and how um you know how important it was to them and also you know how much you know how much how much good hospitality did I did I feel like I received, and uh, because for one, uh, well, I have some quotes here uh, from uh, certain travelers and scholars that that have went to these areas. Uh, this is one coming from Ibn Battuta. He's describing Mali. Uh, he was pretty keen on Mali. Uh, a lot of these uh, scholars were on Mali because Mali was one of those. Uh, well, was when it started to really change and it started to really be more about. Uh, adhering to Islam, they started to let go of certain, uh, well, a lot of the African traditions at this point in time, it wasn't the full conversion just yet, but it it was at least starting to become visual. Uh, they started to let it, uh, you know, influence their architecture with the University of San Kowari, which we will get to in just a minute, but a little bit about Ivan Batuta, and this is when he's describing Mali. Uh, he says, I have, and and see, this is the example of, you know, him not getting, you know, what he feels as a guest. And I'm going to give you a, a situation that contrasts that in just a second, just to kind of put some, pers some perspective on it. Uh, Ivan Batuta would go on to describe uh, one of his experiences in, in Mali. He would, go, he would say, I have journeyed to the countries, uh, to the countries of the world and, and have met their kings. I have been here four months in your country without without you giving me a proper reception, gift, or something else. What shall I say to you in the presence of other sultans? So he's mad, he, he you know, because the, well, at the, at, when he visited the king at this time, I believe it was Mansa Musa, um, and, uh, or it could have been somebody a little bit before him. Uh, he, he's received in court, but he's given, you know, some type of mixture of yogurt, some meat, some bread and he didn't like that um so he complains about that but he would go on to say you know um and he was referring to how they you know conducted themselves uh, about the religion and he would go on to say another one of their qualities their good qualities is their concern for learning the sublime quran by heart they make feathers for their children when they appear on their part to be failing, uh, failing uh, at, at learning, uh, well, oh, they appear to be falling short in their uh, learning it, of it by heart. So when the kids are not, you know, taking it seriously, when the kids are not, you know, mastering aspects of the Quran, the parents are doing their part to help them do that, and uh, they are not taken of, uh, and they are not taken off until they learn their part. And this was Ibn Battuta on uh, the Muslims in Mali. So again, if if you gave them goodies and you you know you at least practice to run really hard, you know, in a lot of these cases they'll give you some high regard. The sub-Saharan uh, groups that they would come in contact with, they would have some very negative uh, stuff to say. Um, it would be ugly. It would be uh, well, they would describe them as ugly flat nose incapable of you know all types of thought they would be cannibals and this is because a they weren't you know i don't think they projected any type of wealth in terms of what they looked in turn you know they didn't see all the gold adorned on everything and they didn't see all that in some of these places and they saw you know either rural pastoral farming life and that threw them off i think 
And again, they none of these groups, you know, past, you know, you know, the Sahel were really into Islam at the time. So there was none of that. Uh, and, and they didn't they didn't like those cultures. And you can tell by their the way they describe anybody from Sub-Saharan Africa. It's very cold stuff. Um, here's another uh, here's another point of view about the empire of Ghana. This comes from El Bakari. He describes Ghana here in this quote: "The city of Ghana consists of two towns situated on a plain. Uh, one of these towns, which is inhabited by Muslims, uh, is large and, po and possesses twelve mosques, in one of which they assemble for symbol for Friday prayer. Uh, they are salaried imams." Uh, and also was this jurist as well as scholars and again he's describing Ghana here so again you start to see the conversion as early as the Ghana Empire but it's not on a grand scale but again it's here uh, it's here but definitely their view um, and a lot of historians view on you know black cultures was would be how they related uh, for one you know, were they, you know, already converts to a major religion? Uh, and two, were they at least rich enough to give them a whole, were they rich enough to give these groups a whole bunch of stuff? Either knowledge or, you know, women or some type of uh, gold. That's what a lot of these travelers were, you know, trying to get. And the funny thing is, a lot of these people knew this, and I think they were keen to this. And that's why I think in a lot of situations, Ivan Batuta, he would meet, certain, uh, you know, some of these kids, and they wouldn't give him nothing. Uh, but in the Sujata, in Sujata's story, Sujata Kita, who was the founder, again, the founder of the Mali Empire, at one point in his life, uh, in order to protect himself and his family, he had to flee his home village of Niani, which would become the capital of the empire. And uh, when, as he fled, he would go seek, he would have to go seek refuge with other villages and other cities within the same, um, the same empire. <clears throat> and this is even at the time when uh, his, well, his uh, dad's other wife, uh, her son uh, is at the top right now. And he's supposed to be king. They've pushed him aside again. He's on the run. And even, you know, with him being in control, uh, he is able to, as a stranger, even though he's a stranger, his mom is a stranger. Her name is Sogalon Jada and his brother and his sister that came with them. I think his um, uh, his brother would have been, I think his brother was named uh, Madang Bori. I can't remember his sister's name, but uh, when they were on the run, they would go to these different villages. But the villages and the kings and, the you know, whoever would accept them. They would give them all type of goodies. All They would send them off with horses and soldiers uh, to help them along their way at no charge. So I think there's a sense of community amongst the melanated people. But I definitely think they had each other's backs a lot more of it, definitely. Um, and and I, I don't think they were uh, they were keen to kind of the freeloading ways of these other groups, you know, the, the Arabs that just kind of just want to just scroll through and just want to get some gold just for the sake of getting some gold and wanted to chop it up and wanted to just, you know, get some free drink and all that and lay up like, oh, you know, this is not it ain't like that. Um, and, you know, because, again, we have a we have a situation here in Sanjata's case where they're you know they're they're giving him you know space within their confines they're giving him a you know a, a place to live and eat and sleep they're giving him some protection along their journey you know and I mind you Sanjata's situation is a little bit different because he's pretty much everybody in the community knows he's pretty much been destined to be the king at some point <laughs> and there is some benefit to keeping him alive because he's going to unify things but still you know even at that time you know he was you know welcomed with open arms in a lot of in the majority of places he went to on the run pretty much as a stranger and then you got Ivan Batuta talking about you know I'm I'm mad about the yogurt and the and the and the meat that I received I totally get it I think they were totally hip to that I thought that was and I think looking at that was so hilarious because I mean that they have to know that come on they know better, you know, when I and I and I was able to put those two uh, situations together. I was like, oh, yeah, they they already knew about y'all. Y'all just trying to freeload. <laughs> they rather help each other out. Shoot, y'all in a situation. All right, come through. But you ain't just going to lay up and, and do whatever. No, 
and talk about philosophy with our with our with our uh, priests. Okay, well you should pay. You lucky they didn't. Hey, ooh, Ivan Matuda was lucky he didn't get charged for all that. He was lucky to just be able to lay up in their houses like that. Anyway, I'm going a little bit too far, but again, um, they and again, um, Islam is a really you know important theme here because again. This does become a factor in African life, and it becomes, uh, you know, basically the building blocks of where pretty much our reconnection with it when we came to the States. Uh, at, you know, when uh, when it was founded, I uh, would be, I want to say Noble Ali, Drew Noble, I can't remember his name, but uh, when it was refounded again, I, this was, you know, definitely what they were heading, of course, reconnecting with. Uh, were these groups here um, in uh, Mali, in the Mali Empire, uh, which will come about a few centuries later at the fall of Ghana. Just a little bit about the fall of Ghana. Again, uh, part of the, the dichotomy of life in the Sahel was a constant battle between the pastoralists, a.k.a. the herders, and also the farmers. The farmers, of course, of course were sedentary. They lived closer near the south, of course, was a little bit more lush and green, of course. And they, you know, of course, they, you know, planted, they harvested. And uh, that would be, you know, how they developed their wealth, of course. It was all about the trade of gold and, and the salt as well. And pretty much these groups of pastoralists and, well, the herders and the farmers, uh, there was a constant battle, of course, not only of the trade routes, but the other minor states that were developing as well, who controlled either a salt or gold mine. So not only were they, you know, at a, at a, at a battle between, you know, just their lifestyle, just being able to have more land to, you know, graze or plant and all that, uh, they needed control or more access uh, to the, the salt, which was probably just as important as the gold as well so battles over that would be common uh battles again over the tr the control of the trade routes would be common uh ghana was more of a pastoral uh society uh at the time uh they pretty much got in uh trading leather work they traded leather work so on and so forth uh mali was more of the farming empires uh there's there's real talk of uh especially in their epic poem uh, describing the rise of Sanjata, uh, a bright country uh, where there was, you know, massive, you know, fertile green uh, farming closer to the river delta, you know, deeper into the interior. So that's how they came about. Uh, what what ended Ghana, and this is before I get into Mali, too far into Mali, uh, was just these farming uh, groups finally coming together, these farming villages coming together and forming their own uh, empire. This is called the Soso. They were like an intermediate group, and they were ran by Samoro Kante, who at the time was known as a sorcerer king. Uh, and it's very, you know, uh, you know, and my, my whole thing about black magic and magic in general is simply that well, I don't, I mean, I'm just going to say it as simple as this. It's all that, it's all what the individual believes. Uh, I personally believe that uh, your, you know, I think people's thoughts and actions, I think you can captivate many people to follow you, especially in the sense of a, a shaman, probably king, which he, uh, Tomoro Kante was. You definitely captivate people. I think there's some truth to being able to get some energy for mass you know mind control or mass mind you know or soul manipulation i i can kind of see that uh but i don't see i don't believe in casting spells per se and being able to just control somebody with some type of potions i do believe these people were you know experts in you know medicine at the time in some capacity um even there's uh evidence of the blacksmith cast also being some somewhat of the doctors of the medicine men of the community as well so i'm pretty sure there was knowledge of herbs and all knowledge of you know all that all those type all that type of stuff but again you know, chain being able to actually manipulate, you know, matter and stuff like that. I don't believe in that per se, uh, but I definitely believe there is there is evidence to say that Mr. Conte had a soul fetish. He was a very really cruel and wicked man uh, in, throughout that area. That dynasty was very wicked um, in some things, in some ways, and um, 
again, when Sunjata brought the people of Mali together and uh, the, the 12 doors and also the three, the three, you know, the three main states together, um, it was a really tremendous uh, occasion for the people of the area and for the people of the region, because uh, it was almost like he freed freed them up uh, from this tyranny. Um, again, they were, I believe, they were more along the military side, uh, like a military autocracy as well, the Soso Empire. So they were freed up from all that um, by Sunjata Kita, and it was a very really real experience. But again, uh, as for Ghana, they never truly fell because they were never really sacked by anybody, uh, but they would eventually join the Mali fold and uh, they would pretty much bring in the big bucks for, for them, uh, help, will help bring in the big bucks for them. So they never really disappeared. Uh, they just, well, they get, just got absorbed up into what would be now uh, the Mali Empire. Like I said, the Mali Empire was uh, founded, uh, let's take it back, all the way in, um, let's see, 12, yeah, 1235 CE, and it lasted all the way until 16, uh, 1670. So we have some very long-standing, um, you know, empires, and they, you know, would amass, you know, tons of land. Of course, in terms of uh, square, uh, well, in terms of uh, how large uh, Mali, Mali was actually the largest of the empires uh, at its extent, at its largest extent, uh, at its height, it would expand to about 500,000 square miles, which is actually bigger than uh, like a, a, a few countries in Africa at the moment and also bigger than a state like Oregon or Washington. Uh, so, you know, Washington and actually Oregon combined would probably just be a little bit bigger, but we're just talking about, you know, kind of reference here. Uh, both of the states on their own, you know, the, the Mali Empire was bigger than both of those states on their on their own. Um, the capital, of course, would be Niani uh, and also Kabanga, uh, sorry, Kang, Kangaba uh, as well. Um, this of course was founded this empire of course was founded by Sinjata. his story is probably one of the most interesting uh i guess coming of age stories a king could ever have he did not have the traditional uh start if you listen to the epic poem uh he could not walk for seven years uh, i think that was historically uh proven to be true although there's no real reason no real reason as to why he couldn't that's been found or you know what all of a sudden you know made him walk again if you read the epic poem uh by dt uh niani uh sunjata an epic of old molly if you check that out it'll tell you it'll describe you know how uh his uh his griot which is a very important part of the west african culture which we'll get to in just a second uh the griot his griot bala fasica uh was able to get an iron rod for him and he just gave it to him and he just was able to just hold on to it and pull himself up and bam he was standing but of course he like i said he wasn't able to walk for the first seven years of his life and uh he got his mom got a whole you know heap of hell for it. he got a whole heap of hell for it but one day he just decides to get up so again he didn't ha not have the 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 common story but again there is talk at least in the in the story itself the epic part the epic poem part of it uh there is some type of divine destiny and his whole purpose uh was to bring together the buffalo and the uh lion clans in order to uh save you know save molly and this is important because these groups and these clans they all represent you know different you know different tribes and different groups uh that were very essential to the story uh and not only that just to the history today and these people still exist this is why it's important kind of to know you know really what what's happening what's going on of course uh some of the biggest highlights about the mali empire uh was uh we have mansa musa uh being able to pilgrimage all the way to mecca uh you know he well he's have he had the most you know 
the well, the most famous one, of course. We we heard about him bringing all the gold, and he basically made Cairo bankrupt. Uh, but again, this is uh, again with the Mali Empire. This is when it starts to become uh, an open thing. Like, oh yes, we are Islamic. Uh, you know, we have kind of been like this because again, if you go a little bit back uh, to Sanjata's backstory, uh, one of his earlier ancestors, his name would be. His name would be Balali uh, Balnama. Uh, I believe uh, that's it. Well, one of his uh, ancestors and one of the founders. Well, I wouldn't say a founder of Mali, of course, but he would be one of, part of the original people who would again inhabit that area uh, of time around around the Niger uh, River Delta. Now, his grandson uh, Lahida. To Kalbi was the first prince to pilgrimage to Mecca. So again, it starts with you know who will become the Mali Empire, their ancestors all the way down. Um, there's no evidence of um, there's no evidence of Sunjata pilgrimaging. Uh, sorry, you know making his pilgrim a uh, pilgrimage. And there's also accounts of again. You know there is that blending of the two um, the two belief systems that being the traditional and also uh, the Islamic because there was no real evidence well actually evidence uh, kind of says that for Kita's case Sanjata's case he was actually you know like a hybrid he wasn't necessarily a devout uh, converter uh, but again when it came to Songhai, the last of these empires, they would fully convert and they would make multiple pilgrimages to Mecca. So that, and they would pretty much be a style, again, like I said, they would also hire uh, elected officials to work within their government that were Muslim outright. So uh, they would actually uh, be basing their laws and their administration off the Quran and also, you know, Islamic law and also probably well, Arabic law as well. Uh, that became one of the major languages there. Uh, another highlight about uh, the Mali Empire was the big trading city of, of course, uh, Timbuktu. Uh, this was a real authentic place uh, that housed the University of St. Croix. Uh, the University of St. Croix uh, was one of the first universities. Well, it's, it's important because it's one of the first universities in the area. Um, and it, well, it was a curriculum of uh, philosophy, religious philosophy, you also had astronomy, uh, you also had geometry being taught there, all types of mathematics, uh, you had writing, of course the language at the time was Arabic, uh, and there's also 700,000 texts that still remain all the way from the 12th to 16th century from this school. Uh, they would also have different types of uh, degree programs as well, so it was a legit university. Uh, people from all over, at least the Muslim world, uh, were coming to the school. Uh, this was a this was a big monumental thing, and it still exists to this day uh, to some capacity. So uh, the University of St. Croix as well was one of their biggest highlights. Of course, you have uh, Mansa Musa. Of course, there's also evidence of uh, the Mali Empire uh, being one of the first to travel across the Atlantic Ocean into the New World with Abubakar II. I've mentioned this a couple times. I want to say this was around uh, 1325, something like that. Uh, this, ah, that, yeah, I, I don't have the, the actual year on me like that. Uh, but again, that's, you know, that's pretty much what they were doing. They were traveling. Uh, they were amassing uh you know, tons of wealth. Uh, you start to see some of the largest armies uh, at, at the time in, in uh, Africa's history. Uh, Mali would amass a force of 100,000. Uh, and also that would actually, that arm, that number would grow uh, with the Songkai because again, they were more of a military autonomy, on uh, military autonomy. So they would have probably the largest armies. And also these armies had large cavalries. Uh, they would start to trade in horses. Uh, that was what one of they well, that what they would that's what they would import for their armies. Uh, their cavalries were top notch. So we're talking about and again I might have said in the past where in a lot of uh, African history and a lot of the culture warfare might have been um, ritualistic as opposed to all out conflict. Uh, not always the case. Um, I had to go deeper into this uh, and 
that statement is not necessarily i mean it's true definitely uh there's tons of tons of cultures that were uh not necessarily into the bloodshed and you know all that uh but it's it's you has there has to be some type of large military force to control any type of empire so uh over time i was able to develop more of my knowledge on um their military feats and some of the biggest armies were in Mali and in Songhai. Uh, again, we're talking about standing armies of over 100,000. We also had infantry units in the different uh, vassal states that contributed uh, either through money or, you know, military power or weapons. So again, you had uh, weapon creation as well. Uh, you had uh, in-depth skills in terms of blacksmithing, of course, they would go uh, create, you know, javelin spears. Oh, and uh, one thing that I will say, archery, archery is big, big, big in all African warfare. Uh, we had some of the best marksmen, best archers. Uh, history has neglected to mention, um, and it, and it's a long line. It's a historical thing. Uh, not only were the armies of Mali uh, really in depth with their uh, archery units it all it goes all the way back to Tasseti, which will be the uh pretty much the ancestors of what will be the egyptians uh the at least the you know the old kingdoms and all that the ancestors of those guys uh the nubians and so on and so forth they were tas they were known as Tasseti or city of the bow so again archery is a big major a thing in African warfare history does not uh, really spe get into that. Uh, but as far as Mali goes, uh, they had different uh, regiments. For one, they had a regiment uh, that had poison tip arrows. Uh, they were marksmen. They would be used at pretty much as like you know you call like a green beret, like a special you know uh, out of the out of the blue unit that would come up and just pick boys off with with poison arrow they get poisonous or rap uh and again the archers themselves it was a very uh very serious you know skill to have and it was it carried a lot of respect uh so again warfare again it existed so did slavery uh you know these are parts that you know they might be negative but again it's a part of it. Uh, slavery was different as opposed to what we see in the new, it will, what happened in America. Uh, it was strictly uh, carried to prisoners of war and or people that you know lost their whole entire family uh, it within some t within some type of uh, tragedy. And I think in those cases, those people were just more so adopted into the family as opposed to enslaved. Again. Prisoners of war, uh, male prisoners of war were your primary, uh, primary uh, slave uh, demographic. And that's probably because, of course, they can work and then fight in the armies. They can conscript to your army. So that's pretty much what that is about. Uh, so, again, large armies, there was some slavery, but again, there wasn't it wasn't generational. Uh, you know, if. You know, he was able to, in which, you know, a lot of cases, slaves were able to free themselves, uh, which was another difference. Uh, but their family was not enslaved. They did not enslave, enslave their entire family, sell them, none of all that. No, no, not nothing uh, near uh, what we saw in, in America. Um, let's talk a little bit about what we saw in terms of government in these cities, uh, well, in these empires. In Ghana, they had a strong capital city, of course, Kumbasali, which was the core, uh, cultural hub, as well as the educational and the trade hub. They also had other vassal states, and this was pretty much the key for a lot of these different places. Well, they would just end up conquering other nations and other groups, and they would be, you know, vassals. They would send tribute every, uh, you know, time and again, or however, you know, frequent it was need, frequent it needed to be. Uh, and you would have a king ruling, you know, certain territorial units, a king ruling over each one. And uh, as Ghana began to integrate more into Islam, uh, their structure uh, and actually, they were actually some of the first to start hiring Muslims uh, into, uh, you know, government positions as well. So there was some Islamic influence uh, in their style of government already dating back into Ghana as well. Uh, but for Mali, they were a decentral decentralized unit of confederated allies. Uh, now, the 
Manden Karufaba, as it was called, was three large free states that kind of just joined together. Uh, they had some of the strongest economies. They had the strongest, you know, military forces. So they decided to become allies. Uh, they would go on to conquer the other 12 doors of Mali, which are basically uh, groups that pretty much either just allied with them or or they had to outright battle. Uh, so again, um, there were some checks and balances as well uh, for the Malis in particular. Uh, the kings usually were put in check by a council of elders. Now, elders are very important uh, in African societies in general. Uh, they have the most knowledge. They've you know, been around for a very long time. So they know, uh, you know, they are experts in certain things, of course, uh, and, you know, and just in general, their knowledge about life and especially the spiritual, you know, aspects were very uh, relied upon and they were placed in very high places of society. So uh, elders were very important. Um, and then finally, you have some guy, like I said, a military autocracy uh, that fully converted to Islam. Uh, and this is actually where you start to get uh, not only the University of St. Correa, uh, right in between the in between, you know, right in between Mali and Songhai, you also get a um, push for just universities as well uh, and just studying and scholarship. This is when, uh, you know, you start to see writing, uh, like I said, uh, the West Af the West African population was beginning to fully convert to Islam, so you start to see that influence more uh, in in the architecture as well. Uh, and the and and it's very important to know that um, again, this was you know something that was brought to a lot of these people through trade. Uh, they were just not practicing Islam just on their own. They didn't develop it. It was brought bought via trade with the Arab traders. And the cold part about it was uh, uh, what led to a lot of conversion, whether it be to Christianity or Catholicism or Islam, will be because these different merchants are bringing in these different, you know, uh, well, you would say these different, you know, treasures or these different, whatever, you know, and it's a trade, it's trading. We're all trading these different goodies. We're all trading these different trinkets and all that or spices, whatever have you. And if you weren't part of the, one of the three religions, a lot of these traders, especially the Muslims who were uh, in that area, especially North Africa and all the way up until, you know, certain parts of Europe as well, at that time were the dominating uh, group, especially in Africa, uh, well, at least Northern Africa. And if, if, Groups weren't, you know, not only did they, you know, talk bad about them historically or talk bad about them in their travels, they wouldn't do business with them. So you'd have tribes and villages uh, pretty much getting left out and not being able to, you know, diversify, you know, their inventories or, you know, at least even communicate with these people without having to be a convert. And that's when you start to see the blending of the two, you know, belief systems, you know, a lot of that as well, you know, whether it be uh, one and for one, there's animism and animism, again, is the belief that all, you know, everything is connected and everything has its own spirit within it, you know, everything like that. So you have a whole, uh, you know, dichotomy of the religion or the spiritual aspects of what of what is going on. So I, I there is some type of I, I do believe at some point in time some type of identity uh issues that do arise. Um because again, uh, like I said, the the way in which kings or way in which government really, you know, was disseminated was of course it was interpreted by a king who then gave it to the masses via a griot, which was a very, you know, essential aspect of the society in West Africa. He would quell, you know, arguments. He would work, you know, within the government uh, in administrative roles, so on and so forth. And he would keep, you know, the unity, you know, the unity uh, there in the community as well, along with the elders uh, as well. So, uh, you know, with that, you do see you know, there is some type of dichotomy within, you know, the belief system. Because again, the 
a lot of the a lot of the laws were passed by the landowners anyways and these were families these were large family units uh and that's who nominated would even you know nominate some of these original kings anyways that's how they came about and when you start to take away you know some of the traditions as to how they would you know because again when you adhere to islam or christianity certain things might be considered taboo that you would normally do beforehand so the ways that they would go the rituals and what i'm trying to say is the rituals that they would go out to 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 have a king or to you know the rites of passage a lot of these really core functions are eliminated from these communities and they try to hodgepodge it or we can we can put in some islam here but keep this and it doesn't work it doesn't really work and part of the re in one well especially in the beginning uh for ghana they did face some type of flat because not all of their rulers wanted to convert and this would put some of their french kingdoms or some of their french communities at risk to being conquered and some of them were the capital itself was never taken but the empire itself did lose a ton of a ton of uh holdings and a ton of you know production because of muslim you know invaders the almoravids would routinely raid them and routinely you know go at war with them because of jihad they were not of the same they did not have the same beliefs or they would not convert to the same beliefs fully so there's a lot of friction with uh these groups with arab uh with arab muslims because of that um, and that's part of what you know at least led to some of the downcline of Ghana, as well as you as you can see uh, there as well. But uh, there's you know there's way you know too much. There's way man. We've all we've almost reached the fifty minute the sixty minute threshold here. Oh my god! Uh, but as you can see, there's so much we have unraveled. I think I think we're gonna need a part two. So <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to let y'all go for now and uh, I will be back tonight with part two. We're going to get a little bit deeper. We're going to get into a little bit about their societies, a little bit more about why the griot and the oral tradition is important. Also, oral versus written history. Uh, we got so, <laughs> so carried away with the why and the, and the how and and what's going on. There's so many thoughts that we can talk about. So we're going to break it down a little bit more. I will be back tonight. All right, y'all, if you're looking to get in touch with me, you can hit me up on my email at ljbutler75 at gmail.com. That is E-L-J-B-U-T-L-E-R 75 at gmail.com. Once again, that is ljbutler75 at gmail.com. E-L-J-Butler75 at gmail.com. Also, the Facebook page as well as the Instagram at Johnny. E-L-J-A-M-A-H-A-D-J-A-N-I and also have a Facebook page for the show as well at Never Out of Bounds. All right, y'all. We went off the deep end a little bit again today. <laughs> uh, sorry, guys, but uh, I, I I think it was much needed. But I'll be back tonight to cap this all off. All right, y'all. If anybody hasn't told you yet, I love you. Peace out. One love. And I will holler at all y'all later. <laughs>